Well, the church has faced many threats over the centuries, some very obvious and blatant, others more subversive and harder to spot. While the majority of churches around the world have been and are still dealing with the threat of martyrdom, even as our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso struggle with it, over the last hundred years here in the United States, and more specifically in the last 40, the American church has been dealing with an undercutting that is far more subversive and insidious. This insidious threat is that of a misunderstanding of the basic idea of what the church is, what it is to be. The reason that this is so insidious is because it goes on unnoticed. If you ask the average Christian, the person that proclaims to follow Christ, the simple question, what is the church? You'll get many different answers. For some, it is the place or building where Christians meet. For others, they may say it's a group of people that claim to be Christians. You may get any number of answers. And the answers that I believe we should be most aware of are those that exist but are not often identified. Those that sit in the background of the collective mind of the American church. Some of those answers might be turning the church into a social club. Turning it into a place where Social justice is done just as an act of service with no relation to the gospel. Or worse still, that the church is a producer of religious products. Good worship music. Sermons that can be digested through podcasts. Many churches simply sell us a religious experience. Or for many Christians, they sell a teaching that allows us to check off the box that we have been holy for the week by going and listening to someone else talk about Jesus. These wrong views morph the church into an object that fulfills our individual pursuits and desires, but yet misses the point of the people of God. And in so doing, I believe Satan neuters the church, takes away its power, and takes away its witness. If we look at the history of the church, this has never ever been the case in orthodoxy. In his book, An Introduction to Ecclesiology, there is an author and theologian whose name I'm going to mispronounce because it's Scandinavian, and I should be able to pronounce it because my ethnicity is Scandinavian, but his name is Veli Mati Karkanen, I think. <laughs> Forgive me if I mispronounced it. And he wonderfully gives examples of orthodox views of ecclesiology throughout the years. Here's, here's those views. If we look at Eastern Orthodox, which is orthodox. It is our brothers and sisters um, who follow Jesus Christ as we do. They view the church as the image of the Trinity, a unity in diversity. Here's one of the quotes from that section of the book. We know that when any of us falls, he falls alone. But no one is saved alone. He is saved in the church as a member of it and in union with all its other members. The Roman Catholic view the church is the people of God. Here's a quote from that section. God has, however, willed to make men holy and save them, not as individuals without any bond or link between them, but rather to make them into a people who might acknowledge Him and serve Him in holiness. The Lutheran tradition, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, believes that the church is the priesthood of all believers, practically being Christ to each other. Here's a quote from that section. The inner life of the church is the priesthood of Christians for each other. You see a theme developing here? The Reformed tradition, which is what we are more a part of, views the church as covenant, as a covenant community. The church, it says, is to be a witnessing community. And this is the quote. The existence of that kind of serving church requires the voluntary commitment of all members to each other. The free church tradition believes that the church is to be the fellowship of believers. And here's a quote from that section. They emphasize the importance of community for the right understanding of revelation. True orthodox theology has emphasized the communal and at the same time has also understood that the communal is only as strong as the individuals within it. This is the view of the church that is orthodox. What you don't see in orthodoxy is the individualism that we have infused as Americans into the church that makes it just about your salvation and just about your view of God and just about your theology. 
When either one is elevated above the other, either communal or individual, the church loses its strength. Too much individualism and the church loses the power of its collective witness. And too much communal identity and the church can become inbred and abusive of the people within it. It is only in a balance of the two, communal and individual, that God's people are able to truly proclaim the character of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Diversity, and yet collectively unity. One God. And so in the midst of God's people, both Old Testament and New, we see that His kingdom has the balance of collective responsibility and individual respect. This is what we're calling the sermon from this morning, the balance of collective responsibility and individual respect. This is the underlying principle behind the section of text that we're going to go over today. Because we're moving from this section that was all about the collective structure of the people, the rulers that would be over all of them, what the general rules were for the collective community, and we're now moving into the stipulations and laws that are detailed for dealing with the individual. And so we have to understand this picture of the collective made up of individuals. Throughout the New Testament, we see this as well. The picture of the body made up of many members. The temple made up of refined stones. The family of God with its members all become metaphors used by the New Testament writers to speak of God's people, the church. But I believe that in the midst of what we will see this morning is not only this underlying principle, but we will also see that these characteristics of the kingdom are perfectly personified in Jesus Christ. And in His obedience to these laws at a very principal level, He becomes the perfect sacrifice for us to atone for our sin and make us reconciled with the Father. So let's first look at it from this collective view. And what I want to show you now is that God's view of sin and atonement requires a collective responsibility. That's the first point for today. God's view of sin and atonement requires a collective responsibility. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 21 verse 1 there, and we'll read through it now as we unpack it together. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. In the Hebrew, that also means decapitate or behead so that the blood comes out. And the elders of that city um, shall bring the... Uh, sorry. There we go. Verse 5. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him, and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Remember that Deuteronomy is a collection of the sermon or sermons that Moses preached to the people as they were preparing to enter into the land to occupy the land in the name of Yahweh. And remember that this ancient law code was given to the Israelites of that day to help them provide a collective image of who the God was that ruled them versus the other gods of the Canaanite lands. And so we look at it realizing that our culture and context are about as vastly different as you can get, but yet the underlying principles of the laws still are very much at play, as we've been seeing. And we're going to continue to see this over the next few months as we continue through these detailed laws. We look to the underlying principle, not to the shallow level, the surface level of what it is. So what's the situation here? Well, we already read in Deuteronomy 19 the circumstances surrounding someone who committed accidental murder, uh, accidental manslaughter. They would go to the city of refuge. And we, re we also read in chapter 19 what's required of witnesses who would speak and say and accuse that someone had committed murder. 
But here we have a situation where a body is found in an open field and their wounds lend themselves to the idea that they were murdered in a premeditated fashion. But there's no murderer to be found. In our culture, what we would call this is a cold case. We might still investigate as information arises, but for the most part, we could do nothing about it. But this is not God's viewpoint. He doesn't just leave it alone because there's no further evidence to bring up a murderer. He deals with it. You see, in God's created order, He is a king ruling over a people in a ruled territory or realm. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom. He is a king ruling over a people in a ruled territory or realm. And there is a connection between the citizens of that realm and the realm itself. And so the elders and judges would first measure out an area of jurisdiction. Talk to the law enforcement officers in this church and you'll see that this is something that is still at the base of our law enforcement structure. An area of jurisdiction. And then they would do an investigation. And when no one comes forward or is found, the closest community within that jurisdiction would declare that the necessity of justice had to be accomplished. Why? Well, in the biblical worldview, in some spiritual or mystical way that we don't quite understand, the ground itself, the realm of the king itself, is connected to humans in a deep way. And when innocent blood is spilled on it, it will not receive it. The ground itself, the created order itself, will cry out for justice. Let me unpack this a little bit so you guys can understand. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's preparation of the land upon which His people, Adam and Eve, will inhabit. And in the Hebrew tradition, this was to point them to the fact that God had also provided the land of Canaan, which was God's realm for the people of Israel to occupy and inhabit. And so they were to be stewards to watch over and protect the land, just as Adam was to tend and keep the garden. And creation exists innately in a state of righteousness and justice. Remember that God created everything, and what did He say? God created it, and He saw that it was yucky, right? He saw that it was bad. No, He created everything, and He saw that it was good. Just go look at Genesis 1. The created natural order of things is good. And so God created this with the idea of shalom and peace and righteousness and justice. Innately in the world, you see light and life led by the Lord. But it was disturbed by something heinous. It was disturbed by mankind breathing our selfishness into the world and disturbing the shalom and peace. And murder is one of the highest forms of that disturbance. And so when that disturbance happens, justice needs to be completed. You see, murder, bloodshed, was of the kingdom of darkness, not of the kingdom of light. It is the shedding of innocent blood that is characteristic of the kingdom of darkness. Going after the vulnerable, killing the vulnerable, is of the kingdom of darkness. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, and you can see what I mean. Go to Isaiah 59. And take a look at a few verses there. I'll also have them up on the board here. In Isaiah 59.1, it shows and speaks to the fact that the shedding of innocent blood is a characteristic of the kingdom of darkness. And I wonder sometimes if we as a culture that loves bloodshed, man, we love our bloody movies, we love boxing. Uh, we love MM, MMA, right? If we should probably rethink some of that stuff and how much joy we get out of it. Look at 59.1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. You see, the reality is, is that we as a culture have bought into this kingdom of darkness. The Bible says, says elsewhere that even though God is a man of war, He hates those who love violence for no reason. And the reality is, is that the kingdom of darkness, where it is present, violence reigns. And so then He says in verse 7, take a look there. Those who are of the kingdom of darkness, their feet run to evil. Oops. 
Their feet run to evil. And they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. This describes the people that are part of the kingdom of darkness. That have their allegiance to the adversary and the rebellion against Yahweh. And so when innocent blood is shed, it is pictured as if God's creation, which knows the ways of righteousness, will not accept it unless justice is done. This view of the ground crying out for justice to be done is seen throughout the whole Bible. And it's not unlike what happens today. Our society, even completely secular society, you see complete non-believers, atheists, that want nothing to do with God, crying out for what? Justice. Every movement that's in social media now, whether it be the red X on the hand, whether it be hashtag me too, whatever it is, these things are all humanity, created order, crying out for justice to be done. Think about Cain and Abel, the first murder. What does God say to Cain? Let's look at Genesis 4, 8 through 12. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then Yahweh, the Lord, said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, God's answer would be what? Yes, of course you are. <laughs> Wait, you don't get this? You're literally the second generations of humans. It's already been lost on you, right? And yet, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. There is a disturbance in the created order. The heart of God is, yes, you are your brother's keeper, but the heart of Satan is selfishness and self-concern over and above concern for the other. And right now, the Bible says that the ruler of this world is Satan. In Hebrew, Hasatan means the adversary. And creation has been groaning from the injustice of this oppression, the oppression of this ruler. Look at Paul's words in 8.19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation itself is crying out for justice. So when God finally restores creation, when Christ comes again to rule and reign on this earth, which the Bible proclaims and promises He will, the Bible pictures creation rejoicing that it has been set free from this oppression, this system of darkness and violence, this futility. Look at Isaiah 55.12. Speaking of that day, it says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. The created order is dying for justice. The picture of the martyrs in the church, for those that have died innocently in the name of Christ over the last 2,000 years, are pictured in Revelation. This is Revelation 6, 9-11. through Look at what it says there. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, which means the ground, underneath the altar, these souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
This is not something that will happen in the future. Revelation pictures this as something that's been occurring for 2,000 years in cycles. And the reality is, is that the martyrs of the church cry out. We think of our brothers in Burkina Faso that just have been martyred in the last few weeks, pulled outside their church and gunned down in, in cold blood because they wouldn't proclaim Islam as the one and only religion. Their blood cries out from the created order saying justice must be done. God, if you are a just God, something must occur. There's a divine law that exists in God's creation that justice must be accomplished. And every atom and molecule of the created world vibrates with the anticipation that shalom and wholeness will be restored one day. This seems so foreign to us. As Americans, as individuals, to hold the collective accountable for individual sin, as Deuteronomy 21 says there. They didn't do anything. These elders, these people, they're innocent. Why, why do they have to deal with it at all? Isn't it just the murderer's responsibility? Well, guys, for an example that is somewhat more contemporary, all we have to do is look back to World War II. I know it's 80 years or so removed, but when the Allies started liberating concentration camps in which genocide and atrocities were happening to the Jews... These camps were in the backyards of some German towns. And so the Allies held the citizens themselves responsible for tolerating the atrocities right in their own backyard. Yes, these citizens were not the prison guards. They were not the ones in the gas chambers. But the fact that they stood by apathetically while vulnerable, innocent people were killed means that they were held accountable for it. I think that the United States will be held accountable for the genocide of unborn babies that we have killed over the decades. We will all be held accountable. And so, getting back to the World War II example, on May 17, 1945, this is a picture of the Allied soldiers forcing the people in the town of Neymaring uh, to dig up the bodies and bury them in individual graves. They brought them out of their homes, their nice, beautiful homes, and forced them to dig up the bodies of the prisoners that had been killed. This photo shows an American soldier instructing the townspeople in their guilt for allowing 800 prisoners to die. Guilt is a collective societal thing. And so when there is no one person to hold to account here in Deuteronomy 21, the people of God are to acknowledge and proclaim this necessity of heartbreak and collectively proclaim a desire for restoration as a community. And it may seem to us a very odd and possibly even contradictory practice. But what they were to do was to take a heifer, a young female cow, one that had never been worked or used for labor. And they were to take it to an open valley that had not been disturbed by man. And they were to break its neck. And again, the Hebrew means possibly to behead it. And then they were to wash their hands over the dead body of the sacrifice of this cow, its blood going into the running water, soaking into the ground. Now before we respond with our 2019 PETA cultural context, there are a number of reasons for this act. First, it was to state clearly that murder is an act worthy of death. It was to proclaim that the death of this image of the Creator required death of the murderer in order for justice to be done. And secondly, it was clearly stated that no one was lying by saying that they did not commit the act or did, uh, did not see it done. We tend to think that they had no regard for animal life just killing this animal so blatantly, but realize that this cow was life to them. It was both provision for labor and for food. And for this small town, it was most likely a huge amount of money, let alone an animal life. The community would mourn having to do this. They wouldn't be dismissive of it. They would mourn it. And this mourning would ensure that no one in the community had actually done it because the societal ties were so strong. You know, it's so interesting. You go from Salem over to a place like Monmouth or even Independence, and you see everyone there is so much more interconnected. And it's harder. It's harder for criminal acts to occur. Yes, they still occur, but everyone in the town knows who did it. Imagine if this village were 100 people or 50 people. This act was an act of massive sacrifice to show that they indeed were innocent. 
But most importantly, it was an acknowledgement that when death enters the camp of the living God's people, there is a separation that occurs between the source of life, God Himself, and His people who have allowed sin to enter into their midst. This is the case with the garden. This is the case with Israel in this context. And this is the case with the church that allows blatant ongoing rebellion and sin to go unchecked in its midst. There is a collective responsibility that the people of God take on to unify themselves in living in righteousness and justice. And when the responsibility is marred, it takes the whole collective body to restore it. Now recognize that this can quickly go badly when it moves from a collective responsibility to being about one person individually being in the midst of everyone else's business. And this is where the church has gone wrong over the years. People think about membership and they think everyone's going to get their tentacles into my life and they're going to be busybodies and try and figure out if there's sin in my life all the time. Well, guys, the easiest way to maintain a collective responsibility for one another without also becoming busybodies, is this. When you have a concern about a brother or sister in the church, what do you do? You go to them, not to someone else. We as leaders often have one of you come to us asking about how someone else is doing, and usually it's out of a very good heart, but our usual response should be what? Why don't you go ask them? Because if it's, man, I know so-and-so sick, how are they doing? That's one thing, right? We can easily share that. Oh, they're doing well, or oh, they're sick, they need your prayers. But if you come up and say, so, I know so-and-so is struggling with something, or I know so-and-so is having problems in their marriage, what are we going to tell you to do? Well, you should probably go talk to them about it. And that nips very quickly in the bud any kind of utilization of membership for purposes that are other than godly. The law of Christ speaks to the understanding of the need for balance of collective responsibility and individual respect very, very clearly. This is Galatians 6, for example. In the church of Galatia, Paul wrote this. He said, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, which means sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That you there, that's plural. Meaning the whole church. It is the job of the whole church to walk with that person. It is not the job of the church that the second someone sins to say, bye-bye, see you later. It is the job to restore them gently and lovingly and walk with them through that process. But then it says, keep watch on yourself. Notice the balance with the individual. Lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's, back to the plural. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to balance the collective and the individual in our view of sin and its accompanying responsibility. We, dear brothers and sisters, are in this together to assist each other in walking in the ways of Christ. Christian, you cannot do this on your own. It is too impossible. We need one another. Amen? Well, from here, the detailed law about the collective moves into the more specific civic regulations regarding individuals. And it begins with a bold statement that God cares for the individual. And we see this in one, two, three, four specific examples. But if you add in the idea of the innocent person that was murdered in the first section here, you actually have five examples of individual people which span the gamut showing that God cares for the most vulnerable of society. And so I want you to write this down. This is the second point from our text today. God's view of righteousness and justice requires respect for the individual. Not only does God's view of sin and atonement require a collective responsibility, but God's view of righteousness and justice requires respect for the individual. And we're going to see this in five examples that give us a principle which can be applied to everyone. First, what we see in these laws respecting individuals is we see God speak of the innocent dead. Moses begins with this section, verses 1 through 9, that we just covered, describing the fact that the innocent dead are not outside his care or concern. Do you get that there? He desires justice for them regardless of the circumstances. Well, they're dead and, you know, we just got to move on. 
Not at all. God looks at that situation and He knows it needs to be dealt with. He cares even for the person found in a field that may not even have a name. That's how compassionate the God we serve is. The second section that we read in detail last time and unpacked a bit in our discussion of the principles around warfare is the wife. The, the wife um, here is um, more than just a wife. What's interesting here is that this is not just any wife, but probably the most vulnerable potential wife. This is the female captive of a foreign people afar off that is taken to be a wife. Let me read it again there, starting in verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and she shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. And what that indicates is that she would cover herself in dust and ashes and she would put on sackcloth, the typical mourning garment. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. As we looked at this last week, when an Israelite soldier sees a beautiful woman and takes her captive, he is to treat her humanely. Now we might say, man, shave her head, cut off her nails, make her mourn. This is not humane. And that is true in our 2019 mind, but in that day, this was amazingly humane. And it was to give her a period of mourning in which she shaves her head and nails and most likely sat in those ashes with sackcloth. This would provide a cooling off period in which it would de-objectify the woman so that the man would be able to decide if he truly wanted to care for her as a wife or let her go on her own way. Again, to put it in 2019 terms, this would be like updating your Match.com profile or your Tinder profile with your most heinous picture, and it would require a month-long period where you cannot touch each other. You simply have to be treated with respect. I guarantee Tinder would crash. No one would sign up for it. So even in our 2019 context, the reality of what was going on here was that women were being de-objectified and lifted up. It was an amazing thing in the culture of that day showing restraint, restraint against unchecked lust and an amazingly compassionate elevation of women as individuals worthy of dignity and respect. That's an amazing thing. And it's something that even in 2019, we need to understand. We need to have as a principle of how we view the women in our church, in our homes, and in our society. We could use a little de-objectification of women. Amen, ladies? Well, third, next section is dealing with the child. Take a look at verse 15 there. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, I feel like I'm in a first, who's on first thing here? Yeah, okay. If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, that on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. What? Well, what we have here is this is dealing with the laws of what's called primogeniture, or the law of first birth. In that day, it was typical that all authority and wealth would go through the eldest son and potentially they would receive a double portion so that they could watch over the rest of the family when the father died. Now, ladies, if you think, why is it always got to be about the boys? I can show you in numbers how God cared for the daughters of Zelophad and he created this law in that day, which was nutty, that daughters of a, a father who had no son would receive inheritance. This was outlandish back then. And so the idea is that God is always caring for the vulnerable in the society. Well, the situation here that is acknowledged is that Israel is still dealing with polygamy. 
And even in this, the midst of this, God is reinforcing the fact that the eldest son is the one that would receive the double portion so that he could watch over the rest of the family and hand out the uh, inheritance to the rest of the children. But we get stuck on this idea of polygamy, don't we? Is God suggesting and prescribing polygamy here? Well, remember that the fact that it is here is not prescriptive, nor is it an affirmation of the practice. As with slavery, it was a part of the fabric of the society of the day for a number of reasons. The Bible is not condoning the practice here. It is simply seeking to legislate it in a humane way. God's design and desire is found in the origin of humanity in Adam and Eve and reinforced by the writings of Paul where one husband has one wife. But the culture of the day very much held on to the practice for a number of reasons, and they should have our empathy because of it. For example, with no IVF or fertility treatments, as well as no retirement centers or 401ks, if a wife could not birth children, she and her husband would be relegated to dying as soon as they got old enough that they could not farm the land anymore. It was a death sentence. So what they would do is they, the wealthier couple, would bring on a second wife of lower economic status to provide children in a humane way of dealing with all three people. It provided a chance of care of the parents in their old age because they would then have children, as well as a level of provision for the woman of lower means in her youth. And so it was legislated until such point that it was no longer needed by society but it is not God's chosen design. Now that is not me saying that polygamy is a great idea. If any of you guys come to me and are like, hey, so the Mormon thing, should we? No. The answer is a flat no, right? The Bible is not saying polygamy is good, but hopefully in that example, you see that in the culture of the day, we need to be empathetic to why God didn't just rip it out. Regardless, in some instances, if a husband had stronger feelings for the younger woman, God cares for both the older wife and the child of the older wife in so much as he still gets the inheritance. In other words, he married one woman, she had a baby. He married a second woman, most likely a younger woman, she had a baby. He has feelings stronger for the second wife and wants to give the right of inheritance to the second baby. That's going against the law and it's leaving the older woman and their child out in the cold. And so God says, no, you can't do that. Even if you have stronger feelings for the second wife and their child, God cares for both individuals that would otherwise be oppressed and harmed because of the favoritism of the man. God cares for the vulnerable. He cares for the individual. If we read this in the context of the day, this is not some odd, ridiculous law. This is the beauty of a God who cares for every single individual. Well, next we see that he cares for the parent. Not just the child, but he cares for the parent. Take a look there at verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall, shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. Now, just to cut it off at the pass, I don't want a line of parents out the door waiting for Patrick and I to come and, and you know tell your children to stop being disobedient. That's not what this is saying. And the reason is, is because very few of our grade schoolers will probably make up the next characteristics uh, that they are gluttons and drunkards. Hopefully none of your eight-year-olds can fulfill that there, okay? But look at what they do. They bring him to the elders of the city and they say, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, he's a 25-year-old living at home, partying it down, expecting mom to fold his laundry. Okay? Basically. If that's you, you should be convicted. Yes. Verse 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. Fourth, what we have here is we have the situation of parents who have tried to raise their child in the ways of the great Shema to love Yahweh and follow his law. And yet the child has rebelled and is now at a point past adolescence where they are responsible for their own sin. We know this because they would need to bring their rebellious son before the elders 
And the elders would call out the parents for not raising their child in the right ways if they had failed in this duty. Realize that this is not a carte blanche statement as you often hear it in the American church that children should obey their parents regardless. The commandment and ideal of obeying and honoring your parents is based on the fact that the parents should be raising the child in the ways of Yahweh. Parents, if you tell your child to read their Bible and you don't read their bi- your Bible in front of them, you are a hypocrite. Parents, if you tell your children that they need to be part of youth group and you don't make church a priority, you are a hypocrite. Parents, if you tell your children that they need to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and soul, and you spend your days doing other things, collecting hobbies, you are a hypocrite. Your children will not follow the Lord. If they do, it is not because of you, it's because of the miraculous nature of Jesus Christ. Now the other side is also true. That if you do everything right, parents, it is still their choice and they may still not walk with the Lord. And so the reality is, is that we as parents need to do our best to raise them in the ways of the Lord. And if they don't follow the Lord with that, then it's on them and the Lord will hold them accountable. But parents, we need to make sure we are doing our level best. And here's the reality. All studies, even non-Christian studies have shown that the number one best way for your child to take on your worldview and take on what's important to you is that your child knows that you are safe, trustworthy, loving, and that you care for them. That doesn't remove discipline. It doesn't mean you should be their best friend. It means you should be a parent who attaches to them, who walks with them through life, not just authoritarian telling them how to live life. Make sure you are speaking it and modeling it both. And so the carte blanche statement here is, if your parents follow Yahweh, then you as children need to follow them. If your parents did not follow Yahweh, maybe you're sitting here as an adult, an adult of immature parents, who didn't follow Yahweh, or maybe parents who abused you or manipulated you, then it is actually against the heart of the God you serve to submit to their lead. So much dysfunction comes from this carte blanche view that children are just to obey their parents. There is a caveat. If they follow the ways of Jesus. Our children should be taught that when we are not following the ways of Jesus, I should have John, Jaden, and Kara holding me accountable and going to the elders of this church and saying, my dad is not worthy to be an elder because he is not following the ways of God. Amen? Amen. Being a parent is a heavy responsibility. But again, if the parents were and the child still rebels, parents can do everything and their child still can choose a different path. Well, then they are to take him for a hearing before the elders of the city, and if the elders agree that this son is unrepentant, he is to be removed from the people of God and killed. Why is this? Well, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin permeates the entire environment and community that it is a part of. Unchecked sin. Removing this unrepentant person from God's people was the collective responsibility And so we again see the statement, purge the evil from your midst. We've seen that multiple times in Deuteronomy. And the New Testament says the same thing. It just does not require death. Simply the hard statement that a child is not a part of God's people and then an exclusion of them from the New Covenant. Well, lastly, we see that God cares not only for the innocent dead, the wife, the child, the parent, but also for the guilty dead. Take a look at verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It was a normal occurrence in the ancient Near East for societies to take the guilty dead and hang them from a tree or from the city wall or to take a sharp stick, skewer them on it, and put it outside the city gates. It was a way to tell all that they were warned to not commit crimes. The Romans picked this same tradition up, which is where they got the idea of crucifixion. We even see it in the Wild West as the criminal is hanging from the gallows. We see it that the British did this a few hundred years ago to pirates. Just watch Pirates of the Caribbean and you'll see it there. 
you can still see it in some Middle Eastern countries like Iran. The point was to leave the corpse out so that the birds and animals would peck at it and eat it. And the idea was, don't be a criminal. You don't want to end up like this. Pretty effective if you think about it. And this section started off with the innocent dead and speaking about how their unresolved murder defiles the land that God was giving them. But here we have the bookend statement of the same thing saying that leaving the body of the guilty dead out to be eaten by animals will likewise defile the land. Why? Because it's not just. Yes, the person may have deserved the consequences of their crime, but they are still a human made in the image of God, deserving of respect. And so this is even part of our Geneva Convention that corpses of enemy combatants should not be mutilated. The wisdom of this supposedly archaic law forms much of how we act in justice. You see, dear church, this may seem a little bit boring to go over these, but what they tell us underlying all of them is that God cares about the individual. Especially individuals such as all of these circumstances in which the individuals are vulnerable and easily oppressed. And what this should tell us at a principal view is that if you are someone who has experienced being harmed, even by someone you love, God wants you to know today that He cares deeply for you. He cares about your situation. He sees your pain and oppression. And He wants to be with you in the midst of it. You are not lost in the crowd. You are not alone. He cares for you and He hears your cry and He sees your heartache and He desires to be there with you by way of His people. In a great sense, all of us were under oppression of the evil one within the kingdom of darkness. All of us were the vulnerable that are exampled by these five situations. And so in His loving mercy, in His care for the collective and for the individual, he sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to perfectly fulfill and embody His heart and character through His ministry, His death, and His resurrection. My last point today is this. In Jesus Christ, God's heart is perfectly displayed and His laws are perfectly fulfilled. In Jesus Christ, God's heart is perfectly displayed and His law is perfectly fulfilled. In the life of Jesus, we see God's heart acted out perfectly. Let me explain what I, what I mean by that. The Word of God is so clear. In this section right here, chapter 21, many of us would not look at it and say, man, that is the Gospel. But I'm going to show you that it is the Gospel. Chapter 21 speaks of Jesus Christ in a way few other passages do. The Word of God says that we are deserving of death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our collective sin of being part of the kingdom of darkness is death. In our individual and collective sin as humans, this is what we deserve. And yet, we were chosen and redeemed by the grace of God in spite of our sin, and our sin was atoned for by the, the one that was unmarred by the hands of man. Romans 6.23b, the second half of it says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How was that accomplished? Well, Jesus, just like this heifer in the first nine verses of chapter 21, was innocent, unmarred by the hands of man. He was perfect. And yet His blood was given not taken out of the motivation of vengeance like that of Cain casting the blood of Abel to the ground, but given freely for the purpose of cleansing that which had been defiled. Given freely to bring justice. And that is why the author of Hebrews can say about Jesus in His sacrifice this in Hebrews 12.24. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that gave sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus was sent to be the atoning sacrifice for the people of God, and He died on the cross. In some way, somehow, His blood was shed and given to the creation as a sacrifice that atones for the collective sin of mankind. 
So we, as a collective people, declare, as we go to the communion table and take of the bread and the cup that symbolize His, His body and blood given for us, we declare, like the elders of chapter 21, accept atonement, O Lord, for Your people whom You have redeemed. We are guilty of innocent blood by participating in the kingdom of darkness and the worldly system that it backs but by the sacrifice of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Please let our sin be atoned for. Chapter 21 is the perfect model of the prayer of repentance. And in the spiritual war that was waged on our behalf, being citizens of the kingdom of darkness, Jesus came into our kingdom, brought down the adversary that we follow, and was raised victorious over the kingdom of darkness, proving that He was the victor. And in that process, Jesus looked across the room and He took His church captive as His future bride. He saw the beauty of every single man and woman that makes up the bride of Christ. And He said that this bride is destined to be His own in perfect oneness. But between then and now, and then and the coming of Jesus, we are a collective community of future saints and current sinners. Our future glory is not yet apparent. Just as with the female captive, we sit before our victorious King with nothing to offer. Unlike the female captive, we are marred not because we chose to do it, or because we chose to do it, we are marred by our own sin. And yet, Jesus is allowing us to go whenever and wherever we want, not forcing Himself upon us, but waiting for us to choose whether or not we would be one with Him. We mourn the loss of the kingdom of darkness in one sense in our flesh, but we choose to be one with Him and look forward to the future because He cares for us. God has been so gracious to us through His Son. Through the work of His firstborn, the firstfruits of His kingdom and resurrection, God has provided an inheritance for us all. Jesus came to the earth incarnate in the midst of sinful man, and the Father could have easily cast all mankind aside and started anew. And yet God, in His justice and mercy, looked upon the state of mankind, oppressed by the adversary, and chose to implement a plan of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in that action, Jesus would be lifted up into a place of prominence, the place of the firstborn son, a place of coronation as king taking on the power, authority, and inheritance of the kingdom. And through His faithfulness, Jesus has received a double portion as the first among the resurrected, and yet fully provided an eternal inheritance for you and I. Jesus is the firstborn Son spoken of here. You see, this is amazing because we are nothing but rebellious sons and daughters who by our innate inclusion within the worldly system that was rebellious against Him meant that we were deserving of death. We were given over to the brokenness of this world and we deserved no inheritance. We deserved to be taken before the spiritual leaders and be stoned. And yet for you and I, the spiritually dead and dying, God still looked upon us with righteousness, mercy, and justice. And the triune God acted through the incarnate agent of Jesus Christ to become sin, to be cursed for you and I. To be cursed and defiled as the atoning sacrifice that makes a way for us to be one with our Creator God. The law that proved that we were under allegiance to the kingdom of darkness and the adversary of God. It was fulfilled by Jesus' death on the cross. And so Paul can say this in Galatians. This is Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul pulls that from Deuteronomy 21. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Jesus became the curse for us. And through His work on the cross, becoming sin for us, and yet resurrecting and proving victorious over the kingdom of darkness, in that we were set free and made innocent in the eyes of God and brought into His kingdom so that we can boldly agree with Paul as he states just a little while later in this same letter this truth. 
When the fullness of time had come, God set forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Dear brothers and sisters, visitors, this text today may seem archaic and boring, but in it, it speaks and points to not only the character of God, but the character of God fulfilled in His Son, Jesus Christ, who acted on our behalf. It calls us to be clear in proclaiming God's heart and the principles of God's law, just as Jesus perfectly did. And to do so, we must be a people who recognize our collective responsibility to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters around us. We are not islands unto ourselves. And we engage in this by entering into covenant faithfulness with each other in the body, taking on responsibility for one another and our collective gospel witness. Throughout this process of membership, people have asked me, what's the difference? I'm committed to this church in my heart. What's the difference if I just sign a piece of paper and, and say that I'm part of the body through membership? In that formal step, you are saying to the rest of your brothers and sisters around you, I am taking on the responsibility for you. And you are taking on the responsibility for me. It's not so easy to cut and run when things get tough at that point. You're committing to one another to walk through the good and the bad and to bear that collective responsibility in protecting the gospel witness of this church. And at the same time, we each know that we are individuals who must actively pursue righteousness because our body is only as good, only as strong as the weakest among us. And so when we see the person who's hurting, we see the person in the midst of transgression who's falling, we see the person who's broken, we don't leave them to themselves. We have collective care for the individual. The church is to be the place that is truly a hospital, Martin Luther was the one that started that. And a hospital is not a place where people lay sick and dying for the rest of their lives with unrepentant sin. It's a place where people begin to heal and grow. Much of the evangelical church has been a place where sin goes to hide in spousal abuse or child abuse or, or pedophilia or heterosexual adultery and sin or pornography. The church is not to be that place where sin hides. It is to be the place where the sick come so that they can get better and start to grow in righteousness. But it has to be a place where the vulnerable are allowed to come in and express their sin. The person struggling with same-sex attraction needs to be able to come in and say, I'm struggling with this and not be judged immediately. But walk through that with them. The person who's been harmed in a relationship can come in and deal with that in the midst of this body. We need to be a place where those struggling and hurt and vulnerable can come to gain care. We read this text today and we see a vision for what the church should be. It should be a place that bears collective responsibility and yet cares for every single individual. And so the first point of application today is this. If you do not know Jesus today, then I would say today is the day to proclaim Him as your Lord and King. If you want to know who this amazing God is that cares so compassionately for the vulnerable and the hurting, then I would love to talk with you after service. Just come find me. If you're a person who's a Christian, but you have been wandering alone in much of your Christianity, we as a church want to invite you to become part of this body. And so if this is your first or second or third time here, come back. We'd love to see you again. And if you've been here a while, then maybe it's time to start looking at what it is to proclaim that you want to be held as part of that accountability and that responsibility as a body. And it's time to join us in membership. And secondly, for those of us who are part of this church and call this church home, let's be a people who commit to balancing the collective responsibility and yet the respect of each individual by being a unified body of many members. In doing so, we will literally show the heart of the Creator God to the world around us. Well, Hans, how do I practically do that? Here's how you practically do that. Balance your own desires with those of those around you. Ask yourself, am I living a life 
fully for me? Am I living a life just for other people and being a doormat? Or do I have the correct balance in my life? And any of us in leadership would be able to talk with you through that and would love to do so. If we can balance these two things, we will literally show the heart of the Creator God to the world around us, just as Jesus did in taking on the collective responsibility of dying for our sins and yet ministering in the Gospel to the individual. And third, as we go to the table of communion, this morning, I want us just to relax a bit and to bask in the knowledge that God has shown us His heart through Jesus Christ and His perfect obedience to the law. Jesus was able, because He was perfectly obedient, to be our atoning sacrifice that has brought us into covenant relationship with God through His death and resurrection. And so as we worship now, as we sing, as we give of our tithes and offerings, as we go to the communion table, let's do that. Let's bask in the knowledge of God's goodness through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.